Please be seated. If you will, let's return to a familiar part of Scripture in John chapter 18. Begin our reading in verse 28. Uh, some asked this past week if we skipped a passage. We did not. We'd asked Ben to do an overview last week. He did a wonderful job, as he always did, and then we always knew we were coming back uh, to look at some other things. And we'll look at the end of chapter 18, and Camper will pick up in chapter 19 uh, digging in a little bit different as Ben's already laid the overview for us. Uh, but this morning, as I said, we begin uh, with this familiar passage, one of the most significant times, if probably the, it's the turning point in history. It is one of the most um, momentous moments in history. This is the trial leading to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. This is the fulfillment of what was promised as soon as our first parents messed everything up as uh, God promised in Genesis 3.15 that he would save a people through this man Jesus who was to come. John 18 verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. Some of your Bibles say Praetorium, which is means governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would be, not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own rules, own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. My kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. The word of our God. Let's pray. Holy God, we do come to this word, this familiar word. We come perhaps hungry and keenly longing to hear what you would speak. We come perhaps so familiar with this that we in our minds want to move forward or to another thing. But I pray that 
you would be at work here in us today. You who have declared to us that every word that you have recorded, all of scripture, is breathed by you and is good for our instruction, our correction, our shaping, to conform us to be like Jesus. So Lord, we pray that your spirit would be at work, not only illuminating our minds, but capturing our hearts, that we might become more like him. We offer this prayer in Jesus' incomparable name. Amen. Baseball legend Babe Ruth was known for many exploits, both on the field and some more notoriously off the field. He was not particularly known for being a man of wisdom. But there is one sage saying that has been attributed to him that has endured the test of time. It is one that is worth considering and remembering and even embracing. Attributed to Babe Ruth was this saying, do not let the fear of striking out keep you from playing the game. There's something that Babe Ruth himself, whether he said it or not, would have certainly understood. Because while his legend is for his home run, known as the Home Run King, and continued to be known that way, even though he's been surpassed by a few guys in baseball history. Uh, So he certainly knows the successes, but what some are less aware of is that he also is a strikeout king. He led the major leagues in strikeouts five times during his career, ended up striking out over 1,330 times, which is almost twice the number of home runs that he hit, the magical number 714. And so therefore he failed miserably uh, more than twice, almost twice as much as he majestically had succeeded. And so if he did utter these words, he certainly understood uh, that you can't let the fear of failure keep you from doing what you want to do because if you let the fear of failure prevent you from doing what you want to do, what you should do, then you will not experience the successes and the joys that go with them either. Now I see this as pertinent for us this morning because as we look at this particular passage, we see in Pontius Pilate a man who was afraid of striking out. And for good reason. Because at the point that we have him here in the text, and he's in this discussion with Jesus, he's already standing there with two strikes on him. First and foremost, if you know anything about him in his history, is he was in over his head as a government official. And then second is his approval rankings were uh, abysmal. Uh, The people that he was to govern, the Jews and and the Samaritans both, as one thing they agreed on, they agreed on they hated this guy. And so he's standing here, trying to do his job, responsible for doing his job of keeping order and keeping peace in this uh, this community, in this uh, Roman area, and yet he has a complicated circumstance that he's facing. One historian says of Pilate, Pilate was a brutal, politically inept, anti-Semite who never should have been in this position in the first place. I kind of wondered what he really thought, but, you know, that was all I got from his, his writing. Another historian tells us that Pilate was an ambitious opportunist. He wasn't a Jewish. He grew up, was born and grew up in Seville, Spain. At a relatively young age, somewhere in his teenage years, he joined the Roman Legion, 
served his military, at some point was stationed in Rome, where he met a young lady who happened to be Caesar Augustus's granddaughter. He married her. At some point after their marriage, he decided that he would apply for a job as a governor. Nepotism is nothing new, and so he was given this job over a people that he couldn't stand and people who therefore came to despise him even more. His administration was marred by mistakes and even hostility toward the people over whom he was to govern. And consequently, because the people hated him, he continually messed up politically. He wasn't even in good graces with Rome at the point of this trial before us. He was striking out. He knew it. He had a political time bomb on his hands that if he handled poorly could lead to a serious revolt. And yet, for whatever reason, he doesn't do what would seem to be the most expedient thing. See, for a man like Pilate, dealing with Jesus should have been easy. Pilate had all authority to do whatever he wanted. The people that he was to govern over who hated him wanted this guy dead. Pilate could have put this guy to death and suffered no consequences whatsoever because Jesus didn't have any rights in this realm. And he would have curried favor with the people that he had governed, at least temporarily. They would have been happy because if there was anybody that at the moment that these people hated more than Pilate, it was this Jesus who had turned their lives upside down. So here we have a conversation that's forced upon Pilate that we are able to look into in the text that we read, and we're going to go back over here for a moment. And yet we tend to wonder, when we think of those circumstances, why didn't Pilate just do what was most expedient? They wanted him dead. You can benefit from him being dead. There would be no consequences from being dead, and so therefore he should have been declared to be executed. And yet Pilate didn't do that. It was something that he seemed to be in, sensing as he was in the presence of Jesus. This guy who was in danger of striking out has now been thrown a knuckleball. And he's not sure what to do with it. And so we pick up in our text as we look at that, and we're going to look over the conversation for a moment and then focus on really what is the central theme that jumps out of this particular conversation. And when we look at it, the, we're going to see that jumping out is on the concern, the pilot's concern, and Jesus' position is whether Jesus is a king and what is the nature of the kingdom over which he is a king. So let's go back to our text, and I'll going to do a running commentary as we look at it here for a moment, and we'll come back. We'll look at those two points uh, and see what the scriptures say, what some of the implications for us would be from that. Back in verse 28, we begin, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas. In other words, if you remember, if you've been with us, they had, he's already been in the presence of, of Caiaphas. Before that, he was house of, you know, Annas, who was Caiaphas's father-in-law, former high priest. He took a shot at him. 
sent him over to Caiaphas, who was the reigning high priest at the time. And now, after having dealt with the religious leaders of the community, they're sending him over to the civil authorities who have the authority to do capital punishment. The Jewish leaders didn't have the authority. Uh, and for another reason we're going to see here for, in a moment, that they weren't willing to do this. And so they took him to the governor's headquarters, the Praetorium. It was early in the morning, and most scholars would tell us that this was somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., probably in higher than the 5 a.m. Uh, there was a reason for that. One is they were in a hurry. They wanted this done. They had got him in the middle of the night. They had done the kangaroo court. didn't take very long. Now they're sending him over. Second is they wanted this taken care of before sunup because uh, there would have been ritual problems because of the Passover, so they want to do their killing in a kosher way. Picking up in verse 29, so Pilate uh, uh, went outside to them. You know, they kind of just shoved them over there. Pilate goes outside of the people. Oh, I'm sorry, let's back up again. We see even more of that. They themselves would not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled. See, if they'd entered into the, into this, you know, the Gentile place, then they wouldn't be pure. So they just thought, here's the best way to do this. We're going to conspire to kill an innocent man. We won't do it. We'll let somebody else do it on our behalf. We're going to make sure they do it before we break our rules. But we're not going to actually go in because we'll be polluted. The idea that we want somebody killed and we're conspiring to do this, apparently that didn't bother them very much. So now here's Pontius Pilate. He goes out and say, what accusation do you have against this man? And I find that an interesting way of phrasing that because he didn't go out and first ask them, what did he do? And I think there's an implication in there that Pilate knows this is a joke. This is ridiculous. So what are you accusing him of? Not what did he do? He, didn't, he does ask that, but he asked that of Jesus later. And, and their response is really fascinating as John records it. Now, the other gospel writers record more. So there was more than just this conversation, but this seems to be the first response. What is the accusation? And their response is, if he didn't do anything wrong, we wouldn't have brought him to you. I mean, that's a non-answer. What did he, what do you think, what are you saying that he did? He did something. And if he, if he didn't bother us, we wouldn't be, I mean, this is the answer that they have. Now, other gospel writers, historians would say that as the conversation Pilate probably pointed out or the facial expression indicated that that was not an answer. And so went on, it became obvious that uh, this man was declaring himself to be a king of some sort. And so Pilate heard that, and he goes back in, and he confronts Jesus directly. And we pick up in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again, and he called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say that about me. In other words, Jesus is saying, why do you want to know? And we're going to come back to this in a moment, but that is an intentionally piercing question. Jesus wasn't playing. Jesus was trying to penetrate the heart. In Pilate's response to Jesus' kind of retort and asking questions was to think that he was playing games and Pilate was having none of it. He said, look, am I a Jew? Your own people, they brought you here for some reason. He doesn't want to play these games. He's dismissive of this. He wants to get to the bottom of it. He wants to dismiss this quickly. He knows this whole thing is ridiculous, but he's not in that kind of a game-playing mode for a moment. And Jesus' response at this point was, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. 
Now, it's a fascinating point that he is making there, and it's significant, and really that's where we're going to be focusing our attention this morning, this part of the conversation, the whole idea of him being king, because now Pilate comes back and says, so you are saying you're a king, and Jesus says, you said it. Um, but the point is that Jesus is the king, but of a kingdom that is not of this world, and Pilate's having to make sense of what does that mean, and is that problematic? And ultimately what Jesus is wanting him to ask this question is, well, what does that mean to me? But the illustration that Jesus uses here is to say, if my kingdom was of this world, we would have operated like the kingdoms of this world do. And I can't help but for my mind to go back a couple of chapters or a chapter into the garden that was just a couple of hours earlier when the army had come in order to seize Jesus couple of hundred soldiers along with religious leaders and then after a brief skirmish Peter takes out the sword the, the symbol of 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 the of war of, of fighting of the way power is exercised in governments through weaponry that not only does Jesus tell Peter to put it away we're not fighting this battle he corrects him now, he corrected him first and foremost because Peter was trying to keep him from going to the cross and he came for the purpose of going to the cross. But it's an interesting thing that Jesus is saying here and it brings us back to a bigger picture of what's going on that night. And picking up in verse 37 again, Pilate said, so you are a king. And Jesus said, you say that I am. And then for this purpose, I was born and for this purpose, I have come into the world. And then he elaborates on that, to bear witness to the truth. And yet the truth that he was there to bear witness to is that he is the promised Messiah, the anointed king that was promised from all of eternity. And therefore, in his body, he is the truth. And he was there at that moment in order to be judged and condemned and then crucified because he was there for that purpose, to lay his life down. That's the truth that the way that the kingdom of God works is that the king lays his life down for those that he loves. And then Pilate, foul tipping way over his head, utters the words that perhaps he's most well known for, which is what is truth, and just a dismissal. And then he walks back out and tells the Jews he has another idea we'll come to here in a moment. But what we see most vividly here is through this conversation, Pilate's trying to find out, are you a king and what's the nature of your kingdom? And those really are the two primary points that we see of the narrative here. And but as I've been working on that this week, I kind of constantly felt like a chicken and an egg kind of situation, like which one should come first? And I had it solved yesterday afternoon and then changed my mind last night. Went to bed figuring I'll figure it out in the morning, and I did, and I had a, a good idea before I left home. By the time I got to the church, I had another idea. I told the first service, I don't know if it'll be the same in the second service. But the thing is, is these two ideas of Jesus and his kingdom, they are inseparable to one another. There's two distinct points but they are so related, even more so than any other king and kingdom, because Jesus is the embodiment of his kingdom, whereas most kingdoms have a geography to them, and then whoever happens to have the power within that geography 
and so they are more distinct from one another. You can have a geography without a particular king, or you can have a king who is temporarily deposed or out of, out of his geographical area, but you cannot have the kingdom of God that Jesus is the king of without the person of Jesus Christ himself. And so that's what brings them together. But I gotta start somewhere. And so I'm gonna start with the whole idea of is Jesus a king? And the answer that Jesus is telling us here and that we see throughout all the pages of scripture is that Jesus is a king like no other. But even the fact that we can say that he's a king like no other, it really doesn't mean a whole lot to us in one sense because the whole notion of a king is foreign to most of us here. Now, I know we have people from different countries here, and so if the Browns were here from Great Britain, they would be the exception here, but I think most everybody here is an American, and so you have the same dilemma that I have. But the idea of a king is I'm familiar with, but I don't really understand. And I really appreciate the way that Daniel Montgomery and Mike Cosper in their book, Faith Mapping, express this, because I think it, it helps us to understand that I'm not alone in not really having appreciation, at least my natural instinct is not to give the appreciation for the declaration that Jesus is making that he is a king here. And so here's what Montgomery and Cosper say. Unfortunately, this, this idea of a king is a foreign concept to most of us in the United States. With our national heritage of independence and rebellion, a suspicion of kings and aristocracy runs deep. In Hollywood, kings tend to fall into one of two categories. One, the Disney king, a charming but generally dopey character. And then they say, for instance, see the Princess Bride or Sleeping Beauty. Or second, a tyrant. And then they go on. The tyrant, it seems, has much more appeal at the box office. Heroes like William Wallace and Braveheart lead a rebellion against the crown. Russell Crowe's gladiator eventually defeats Joaquin Phoenix's Caesar, and they say, who is both a tyrant and dumb. Um, and this is the place of kings in the modern American imagination. Most of the actual monarchies remaining in the world are appropriately vilified for their very real tyranny. The Western world's most notable monarchy, the British crown, while certainly not tyrannical, is more the focus of gossip and tabloid journalism than an object of our hopes and dreams. Our day-to-day -day lives are far removed from the kinds of kingdoms known in fairy tales and in Bible stories. And so I think they capture a very real thing. We, can, we need to stop for a moment and, and not just say, okay, I get it, Jesus is a king but recognize that most of us are conditioned to be able to acknowledge that but not be able to have the natural understanding. Our hopes are not tied to a king. And we really can't imagine a king that we can't control in some way or another. British writer N.T. Wright says, imagine in the United States or in Great Britain, somebody goes on TV and declares themselves to be the king or the new president without an election or a coronation. I mean, it just, you know, it, 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 it's ridiculous. And so we struggle with the idea of king. And I've seen that played out in other areas as well. In our neighborhood, uh, in our house in, in Tennessee, our neighborhood was, you know, our street was on a hill. Which it was East Tennessee, so that's not unusual. Uh, but at the end of our, at the front of our neighborhood, at the beginning of our, our subdivision, um, there was a small highway. And then across that highway, 
there was a, a modest house that was relatively close, so close enough that when it was uh, snowing, you wondered if you were going to end up in their front porch. Um, but, um, but in their front yard, they had a little yard sign. And it was up for a couple of years. And it says, elect Jesus. And in my snarkiness for a couple of years, every day, having to stop there and see that sign right there before me, I kept saying and wanting to knock on their door and saying, what's he running for? And I understand what's going on when I understand Appalachian culture and they're trying to deal with the whole doctrine of election but not actually submit to the doctrine of election. And so they're thinking, well, the word election is in the Bible and the only way I understand election is that people get, and so therefore, you know, we want Jesus to be our king. So let's everybody vote and make Jesus to be our king. That was, that's the likely implication of the, of the heresy in their front yard well-intended if not misinformed but at the same time it's a reflection of this kingship that is, comes from God and is established with all authority and endowed with everything that Jesus is claiming it's difficult for us to grasp but Jesus is saying I'm a king and I'm a king from not from the world I don't get my power from man like every other kingdom in the world. Now, that's kind of fighting words because almost every king that gets in control then declares they're there by God. Well, they are because the scripture said that God raises up kings and he raises up princes, he raises up everybody. Good, evil, doesn't really matter. But it's not the same thing. They get their power from people where Jesus was established and sent directly from God. He is God. And so therefore, we need to recognize Jesus' claim here that he is a king is that he has every right that every other king on the earth claims to have Oh, they can be deposed because the power comes from the people. Jesus, by right and by nature, he has that. He has sovereignty in the fullest. He's not wrong. He has the right to do whatever he wills. It's just that he wills what is good, always. It's his nature. He has the right of judgment and of determination. He has the right to do whatever he wants. He has the right to rule and to expect that those who belong to him will obey. Jesus himself is a king. But we must understand that nature, that he is a king, but his kingdom is not of this world, in light of the fact that it's of what we understand, the kingdom of not of this world. And that's where those two things just kind of blend in. So what is the nature of the kingdom as Jesus is saying that this, my kingdom is not of this world? One, he's dealing with the origin of it. His kingdom, his kingship come from heaven, from God, period. It can't be traced because it has always been, even before there was an earth. The nature of his kingdom requires that we define it, and it's not defined by geographical boundaries. That's one of the primary distinctions that he was making that also seemed to have appeased Pilate. He's saying, my kingdom is not of this earth. I'm not looking to take over a territory. I'm not taking part of your neighborhood. I'm not taking part of your country. I'm not planning on conquering a country in the way that, at least in the way that we understand it. He left out the part that he was going to conquer the entire earth, which belonged to him anyway, but that comes later. But he doesn't have a geographic region. So what we need to understand is the nature of the kingdom of God is this, as we define it, the way I define it often, is the kingdom of God is the reign of Jesus Christ in the hearts and the lives of his people everywhere through all times. 
It's a spiritual kingdom that reigns within the hearts of those who say, he is my king. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. He is my God. And when we make that profession and we believe that, it shapes our affections, it shapes our values, which then in turn shapes our behaviors and then shapes the community which we live in together and the communities in which we live together because we become an influence in those communities. Ultimately, therefore, shapes the nation or states and nations in where we live. And so where the gospel is permeating the hearts of the people, it becomes contagious and other people then follow, not because they are compelled by the sword as other kingdoms require, but because the contagion captures the heart. And whatever has the heart, therefore, then shapes the behavior. And in this case, as the behavior becomes contagious, it permeates. And so Jesus, who has a kingdom that doesn't have any boundaries, except that he has people from every tribe and tongue and nation on the earth, or ultimately will one day, there are some that belong but have yet to uh, to, to respond. But the nature is a spiritual nature. It's one that's in the heart. And this appeased Pilate. Because frankly he thought, well who cares about this? You know, you want to be a spiritual king? And Pilate's thinking kind of like when we say Elvis is king of rock and roll. I mean, who cares? You want to be king? Fine. Michael Jackson, king of pop. It just... You have this title, as long as it is in this area that doesn't have any consequences, it is no threat, I don't care. And that's where he made a mistake. Because he assumed because it was spiritual, it was of no threat to his culture and to his reign and to the country or to the Roman reign. And people continue to make that same mistake in one sense because the reality is where Jesus is truly king, and the hearts of people are following him and his rule, it changes everything and undermines every kingdom on earth. And that is the promise that will always happen. But, see, here's the other problem. That it's not just Pilate's problem, it's our problem as well. We think like Pilate. Even though we claim Jesus as king many times in the church, we then get tired of God's pace, and then we stand in two kingdoms at the same time. going to stop and pray for a second. I don't know what's going on, but something's going on out there. Father, we we commend uh, and pray that you would be at work out in our commons as someone is obviously has fallen. Bring healing and restoration. We pray in Christ. Amen. We who are Christians believe that Jesus is our king, and yet the temptation is to also embrace and to employ the instruments of the kingdoms of this world, assuming that's the way that we are going to get things done. And it becomes difficult because it's not wrong for us to engage in the communities and the cultures where God has placed us. In fact, it's one of the ways that we are able to exert our influence. The problem comes when so suddenly we begin to trust those things rather than the power of God that is demonstrated perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ that is being worked out through the power of the Holy Spirit, which is not of coercion. It is not of physical power. 
It is not of constraint. It is of the capturing of the heart as the love of God in Jesus Christ is evident and people say, that's what I need, that's what I'm longing for, and therefore I will die to myself and every other kingdom of this world in order to follow that. And where that is more pure, you see the power of the kingdom of God at work and it has undermined kingdoms and it has transformed cultures and communities and nations and it's been promised and will one day transform the world. We need to ask ourselves, am I in this kingdom or am I straddling to? One of the things that's fascinating here is a paradox. Ben touched on it last week, but we, we need to see that because there in that room, we see the representations of the two kinds of kingdoms. You see in one man who is governor, not a king, but he is politically aspiring, he wants the same kind of rule, he would do anything for power and for glory. And he represents the kingdoms of this world. And you have the other man who is by right, and in his own nature, he is the king who has forfeited his glory. And despite having all the power that was demonstrated in the garden, because that's one of the things that I cracked up here, Jesus is saying, you know, if my kingdom was like yours, then my disciples would have fought. I stopped them from fighting. But, you know, we, we tend to overlook the fact that it was before Peter pulled out the sword, which they said, we're looking for Jesus, and he says, I am. Boom, the whole army falls down. There's not an army in the world that would overcome Jesus and the followers if he was going to do through military power. He could constrain the world. But God is after our hearts. And obedience that follows the heart. That will transform our lives, our culture, and it is the hope for the future if God's people will follow that. But we have these two things, clear demonstration. And what we have here, and this is where we're going to kind of wrap up in a moment, is there's a confrontation, and Pilate is standing there at the crossroads of two kingdoms. Crossroads is where two roads, they come and not only meet, but they intersect. And so Pilate is representing one kingdom, the kingdom of this earth, and he's coming his way. And Jesus is come down from on high, but now is moving back to going toward heaven. And here they are face to face. They're at this crossroads. And while it appears that Jesus is the one who is being tried, the reality is, is that Pilate is the one that's on trial before Jesus. And not only Pilate, but the Sanhedrin that sent him there, and the whole world, as we will see here in a moment. And what Jesus is essentially saying to Pilate, it goes back to that question, why do you ask if I'm a king? Why do you want to know? That question was intended for Pilate to ask himself, which kingdom will I follow? Will I follow the one where I control things? by my own merit or power or strength or manipulation or whatever it is? Or will I follow the one that this man is claiming to lead? Once again, he fouls it off. He has a good idea. But he doesn't embrace the kingdom that is there before him or the king that is before him. He doesn't reject him, but he doesn't embrace him. He knows that this is ridiculous and that this guy shouldn't be standing there. He should be easy. First of all, there's a political expedience. He could just condemn him. Then clearly there's some sense of right in this guy 
because he doesn't do what's politically expedient. But he doesn't set him free either. Why not? What does he do? He says, you know what, I got an idea. He remembers that the Jewish people had a tradition that took place over Passover, which is every year they let one of their prisoners free. And so he figures this should be easy. I don't have to make this decision. They'll make This is a clear decision. And they'll do it, and then I won't have to have the problem with this. So I'm going to go out. And he goes out to the people, and he says, look, I don't see anything wrong with this guy. And that's an important declaration. That means officially even man declares that Jesus is perfect. He says, I find no fault in him, no sin, nothing, nothing wrong with him. So God has declared that, Jesus has lived that, and now even the people who don't believe have said, he's perfect. But you have a tradition, and so I'm going to honor your tradition. Let's play this game. You can pick one of the prisoners we've got. Now, you can take this guy, who may irritate you, but, I mean, he's healed, he's provided, he's, he's not a threat to anybody. Or you can have Barabbas who as John refers to him is a, a thief or a robber. Other, other testimony talk about the fact that he was an insurrectionist, which I confuse with a resurrectionist of first service, which is just confusing the whole kingdom's things again. One guy in his historian said that Barabbas was a murderer, or at least had killed people in his, I mean, he, he was a thug. So it's a no-brainer. At least that's what Pilate is thinking. Look, you can take this guy who may annoy you, or you can have this guy who may come kill you. Which one do you want? And we see the foolishness of our hearts when they are poisoned by hate and bitterness because they want the thug and don't think we won't do the same thing. We want what we want, and when we hate something, irrationality goes out the window. So give us Barabbas. And even that, we have maybe more going on behind the scenes than what we think. The early church father Origen said that in the second century there was a, a tradition, or somehow within the church, there was this idea that began passing through the church. And, and I don't know whether it's true or not, and I'm not sure if Origen believed it or not, but they, just, they dealt with it, but there's a fascinating symbolism here. Is that Barabbas, which, you know, in Hebrew, or in the tradition Jewish is Bar, is son of, and Abba, father, so Barabbas is son of a father, but that he had a, a given name, and his given name was Yeshua, the Hebrew part of it, which is common name, Joshua, that, as we would call it, which when put in the Greek means would be Jesus. So Jesus Barabbas, Jesus son of a father, and they chose Jesus son of a father, which could be anyone instead of Jesus son of the father. See, the people... And you and I are also asked, which kingdom will you follow? And it's a decision that we need to make every single day of our life. Now, there's the big kingdom picture is, will we follow Jesus? Is he going to be our salvation? But we also do it in a day-to-day -day moment. With little things. And some are bigger. The salvation issue for those who've already trusted Christ, that's resolved, but we have other issues. This week I was reminded, we got an email, Kathy prayed earlier uh, for Preston and Sarah. Uh, they were here last week and they went back to their country where they're serving Syrian refugees and they were not allowed in simply because they're known and they're known to be followers of Jesus. They're fine. We'll probably see them here sooner than they wanted to be here. 
but it's a, it's a minor reality of persecution that takes place around the world. Also last week, there was a list that went out that was put by Open Doors, who tracks what's going on in the different world, and they list every year the 50 countries where persecution is most severe, and then they, they rank them. And then there's all sorts of things in the news about the early rain covenant church in China where the pastor was arrested before Christmas and his wife and over 100 people in the church simply because they were followers of Jesus Christ. And they violated even Chinese law because they've been kept longer than they have. There's just a clear persecution. And whenever I see those things, I'm, I ask myself, I wonder what I would do. And I can say that I believe for some of these big issues, I would probably remain faithful. It's not a great confidence. I don't know that, and I pray that I would. I believe that would be true for most of you as well. But then there's another question. I'm faced with circumstances that are not momentous. Over and over every single day, and I don't even bother to ask myself much, which kingdom will I follow? Who will be my king? When I should be asking myself, who will be my king? Do I want to be the king, the you know, the master of my faith, the captain of my own soul that seeks my own comfort and my own benefit and my own glory? Or will I die to those things for a greater kingdom and a certainly a greater king and to follow the way of Jesus? And every decision we make every single day is a matter of declaring which king will I follow? And as we look at this, I believe we need to look at this passage and realize that not only is it referring to us and showing us the plan of salvation and how God worked out the details that we might have hope, but it is calling us to constantly go back and to commit ourselves to following Jesus in his way, which is not the same way as the world works. Different values, though sometimes they overlap. And what we see in this picture is this, that it is not Jesus on trial, but it is all the people of the world. That Jesus is now sitting on the judge's seat. And he's declaring his verdict on Pilate and the people who represent us and us guilty. And then as we see what's going to unfold, he comes down from the judge's seat and he goes up on the cross where he voluntarily pays the penalty that he has just declared we all owe. That's the king who said, now, which king do you want to follow? Who loves you most? Who loves you fullest? Who loves you best? And in my life, it's not me. And it's not you. People of God, which king will you follow? Which kingdom? Guide your life. Father, bless us with an understanding of who Jesus has revealed to be through these pages, that we might experience the reality and remind us that as he is king has implications far more than whether or not we claim his name so that we are forgiven of sin. But to follow him means to pick up our cross daily, to obedience to him in all things because it's a reflection of the love that we have because he loved us. Lord, I pray that you would make us yours. Give us the clear decision that Pilate had, that the people had. And by your grace, enable us to choose wisely this day. I pray in Jesus. Amen.